0: at, I guess, the, the lineage from uh, the flood onwards uh, the, as the nations flow out from that. And uh, it's sort of like Amazon.com/strash/arc or something like that uh, that we're going through. Um, could be a rocky road for both you and me, so fasten your belts. Genesis chapter 10. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Goma, Magog, Madai, Javan, Jubal, Meshech, and Tiraz. The sons of Goma, Ashkenaz, Riphath, Tugama. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittites, and the Rhodonites. From these, the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and subteka the sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centres of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalnair in Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-eir, Kalar, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kalar, which is the great city. Egypt was the father of the Luddites, the Anamites, Lehibites, Naphtahites, Pathrosites, Kazlahites from whom the Philistines came, and the Kaphtorites, Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemarites, and Hamathites. Later, the Canaanite clan scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon towards Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Admar, and Zeboiim as far as Shah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Afaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hal, Gether, and Meshech. Afaxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almadad, Shelef, Hazamaveth, Gerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood.
1: Wow, yeah, I think he deserves a uh,
2: round of applause there. Can I just leave mic there? Wow, if a Bible reading like that doesn't get your blood pumping, I don't know what will. <laughs> Uh, welcome again. My name's Mark. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Your usual pastor, Joel, is away this week. I was away last week and I got some messages from people after church telling me that Joel had a bit of a dig at me for having the man flu last week. Well, as fate would have it, <laughs> Joel is not here this week and so we're free to have a bit of a dig at him. I won't, but feel free to message him and tell him that I did. That would be fine. Uh, Thanks very much for reading that, Eric. This is uh, the passage we're going to be camping out in tonight. Uh, after the sermon, we're going to be having a Q&A, as we have been doing throughout this Genesis series. And so on the slides behind me, in the bottom right-hand corner, if you can see that, there is a phone number. You can text that phone number with your questions, and uh, we'll do our best to try and answer some of them after the sermon. How about I pray for us, and then we'll have a look in a bit more detail at Genesis 10. Kind Father, thank you that you do not remain silent. Thank you that you do not leave us in the dark, but that you speak, that you speak by your word that you have freely given to us. Father, we need your help tonight as we sit under this word. We need the help of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand what this means and what it means for us so father please be with us tonight and help us to see how to respond to this passage with faith and with obedience and help us above all to see the lord jesus as the one who stands over all scripture for it testifies to him and it's in his name that we ask amen well unless you've been living under a rock for the last 48 hours or so then you will know that just this beginning of this weekend Uh, Britain faced a national referendum on the question of their future within the European Union, and the choice for Britain was quite simple. Would they stay in the European Union, or would they leave? And this British exit, this question, this British exit, or Brexit, as it became known, despite widely being considered very unlikely, it went ahead and it passed by uh, the slimmest of margins, about 52 to 48 And it's a really momentous moment in the life of Europe, in the life of my home country, England. Uh, It is a historic thing that has left a lot of people scratching their heads and wondering, well, how on earth did this come about? What has driven people within Britain to want to depart from the European Union? Now, there are many answers to that question. There are a lot of factors that went into it. But it's been pretty widely documented, and maybe you will have seen some of this on the news or read some of this in the newspapers, that at least part of the momentum leading into this Brexit campaign came from some hostility towards immigrants coming into Britain from other parts of the EU, perceived hostility at least. And now whether that fear of immigrants coming into Britain, whether that was well-founded or not, or whether it's perhaps more of a reflection of a racist or a xenophobic attitude, either way... This result is forcing people around the world to start asking some tough questions about nationalism. Nationalism, that is the the ideology that says that our nation is superior to other nations, that our country stands over and against even other nations. Now, sometimes that kind of ideology can be harmless enough. Think of most American country songs and you sort of get the idea of how it can be harmless, harmless but cringeworthy. But in most expressions, in in the worst expressions of nationalism, it can lead to dehumanising and devaluing other people. Think of, of Nazism and fascism as the worst expressions of this nationalistic kind of attitude. Now what makes Brexit such an interesting event is that according to some commentators, this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is indicative of a rising kind of aggressive nationalism that's happening on a world scale at the moment, according to some. Think of Donald Trump's presidential campaign in the US, for uh, example, or think of the the really right-wing nationalistic political parties that control the parliaments of countries like Poland and Switzerland. Uh, Right now, in 2016, this is a really important moment in the life of our world, to consider questions about how we should think about other nations. Uh, I wonder if you've ever thought about some of the intricacies of relating to other nations. For instance, is it is it appropriate for us to ever think of our own nation as superior to any other nation? Is there any grounds for that? Uh, should the goal of nations be to kind of preserve the national differences between us or should our goal be to eliminate them, to flatten them? That is to say, should we all be the same or should we celebrate our diversity? Uh, Should we worry about the needs and the welfare of other countries or should we only worry about things that are in our own national self-interest? These are, are really tough but really important questions. And as right as it is for us to ask those questions, for us as Christians, there is an even bigger question that stands over all of these. And it's the question of what does God think about other nations? Because that ultimately is where we are going to take our cues as Christians in relation to all of these other questions. And so we're going to be thinking about this this topic of nations tonight. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 10. Now that might seem like a bit of a strange decision to you because as we read through that chapter a few minutes ago perhaps you are thinking that well that doesn't seem like a particularly interesting and dare I say a particularly important chapter in the bible uh, if you're anything like me that your tendency maybe is that when you get to something like that in scripture a genealogy for instance that you tend to just kind of skip right past it you look at the, the last name on the list okay that's the important person time to move on You know, it's kind of like reading the terms and conditions when you sign up for something online, your eyes just kind of glaze over, You look for the accept button, there's nothing important in there anyway, just just get on with it. Let me encourage you, if that is your attitude towards passages such as this, don't let it be your attitude towards Genesis 10. Don't let it be your attitude towards any passage of scripture, uh, even better. Remember 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed. Yes, even genealogies, even Genesis chapter 10. i tell you, this chapter in the Bible, it's not just filling space. Moses was not kind of getting paid by the word or paid by the column when he wrote Genesis, thinking, oh, I've got a bit of extra parchment here, just throw in an extra genealogy and fill it up a little bit. No, this chapter is here very deliberately. It's actually here to teach us a deeply theological lesson. There is something very important that God wants us to grasp from this chapter. And so to kind of help us digest this, there are three questions that we're going to ask tonight, three questions to work our way through it. What, why, and so what? They're the three questions we're going to ask. What What are we actually looking at here, this this document that's in front of us? Why is this this document, this table of nations here, and so what? what? What difference does it actually make ...to understand the meaning of this passage. That's where we're going to be going tonight. So the first question, what? What are we actually looking at? If you actually managed to digest that whole list there, what is this? Well, on first glance, it kind of appears to be a bit of a family tree of sorts, doesn't it? It's a list of people groups who descended from Noah's three sons... ...Shem, Ham and Japheth. And so if you've got a physical Bible in front of you... ...it would really fit you well right now... ...you can see just at a glance there... What's going on? Verses 2 to 5 list some of the descendants of Japheth. Verses 6 to 20 list some of the descendants of Ham. Verses 21 to 29 list some of the descendants of Shem. And so perhaps what this this passage is here to do is just kind of to satisfy the curiosity of some of the Israelites who wanted to know a little bit about their ancestors. If you wanted to know who your great-great-grandfather was, maybe you were supposed to go to Genesis 10 to find out. Uh, I, have, I have an uncle, his name's Jeff, and just this last week uh, he was digging around in the National Archives in Canberra, just having a look for some of our family history, it's a bit of a hobby of his, and my uncle Jeff, he also had an uncle called Jeff uh, that he was named after, uh, but nobody in our family ever really knew that much about this uncle Jeff, he uh, died quite young and so most of the next generation in our family didn't get a chance to meet him. Well, my Uncle Jeff, whilst he was digging around in these national archives this last week, he discovered that his Uncle Jeff was actually quite a a highly decorated flight lieutenant in the Australian Air Force, and he fought in the Korean War. And most interestingly, we found out that he was court-martialed or punching another airman in the nose whilst they were both drunk and on station in Cyprus. And nobody in our family ever knew any of this and we would never have known any of this were it not for these remarkable records that were preserved for us in the National Archives. Now I ask you, is that what Genesis 10 is doing for us? Is it just here to give the Israelites kind of some of the backstory on where they came from, on their ancestors? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's what Genesis 10 is doing. Because it turns out that Genesis 10 is not really uh, interested in tracing the details of a family tree as much as it might look like it on first glance. Because for starters, if you actually sat there and counted all the names that are listed in Genesis 10, you come up with 70. There are 70 names listed in Genesis 10. And 70 is a very significant number in the Bible. It signifies completeness or kind of totality. And so in a subtle kind of way... This passage is trying to show us this is the totality of the nations of the earth. This is all of the nations of the earth. Now, obviously, it has to be selective in the way that it does that and arrives at the number 70. And, and furthermore, it's not even clear that this passage is trying to talk to us about physical, biological descendants. Because as much as this passage uses the word sons, well, that word doesn't actually always mean a literal son Uh, In the ancient world, when individuals or when nations would form a treaty or form a covenant with another group, that would often lead to one person referring to themselves as the brother or the son of the person who you made the treaty with. So, entertain this thought for a moment. If New Zealand managed to invade Australia and we had to sign a surrender to New Zealand, I, I know this is complete fantasy, how would they ever do it? Maybe on sheep, I don't know. But... If we had to sign a surrender, that could lead to us referring to ourselves as the sons of New Zealand. You get the idea? This list is not necessarily talking about who descended from who, who is whose father. It's probably more likely that this is actually talking about who is affiliated with who in the ancient world. And so it's less like a family tree and probably more like a geopolitical map. Now, as you read through this list, there are a lot of names on this list that we don't know who they refer to, but there are a bunch of names that we do know exactly who these people were. Uh, We can tell that by other references in the Bible to these same people groups and by other ancient historical documents that tell us who these people were and where they lived. And I've got a little map for you here. Don't worry too much about the details if you can't see it. This is basically a map of the known world back in the day. And what it will list here for you is roughly where some of the peoples in the table of nations were dispersed on the screen i'm just going to point a few out for you if you've got your bible there have a look at verse 2 and we've got some of japheth's sons there in verse 2 you see the name madai in verse 2 well that's referring to the medes who were up here in kind of the northeast area which is what's today northern iran okay so here's some people from northern iran uh, another son of japheth you get javan there That's referring to some of the people who settled on kind of the western coast of Turkey over there. Uh, One of Javan's sons, uh, Tarshish, verse 4, maybe you recognize that name from the book of Jonah. That's referring to another kind of Mediterranean people group who lived possibly beyond Italy, maybe even over in kind of the southern tip of Spain somewhere. Or jump down the list there. Let's have a look at some of Ham's sons mentioned there in verse 6. You get Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Now, Kush, that's a region just kind of south of Egypt. It might descend kind of down into Sudan or modern-day Ethiopia, that kind of territory. Mizraim, that's just another name for Egypt up here. Put, ooh, excuse me. Put some of the uh, peoples who live in modern-day Libya. And then Canaan, obviously, are the people who settled in what we know as Israel. And so let's keep going. The next set of names, Shem from verse 21. These are the Semites. That's where we get the name Semites from. Uh, These are many of the tribes that settled in kind of the the Persian Gulf and Saudi Arabia, Oman kind of area down here. And I remember these descendants of Shem, this is the chosen line. You remember it was through Shem's descendants that God was going to pass his blessing. We read about that when we looked at Genesis chapter 9. And so what we've got here, I hope you can see already, in Genesis 10, this is a, a picture of all of the known people in the known world. From as far west as was known, to as far north as was known, to as far east as was known, to as far south as was known. Beyond these kind of areas, people just hadn't gone there from within this territory. It was an unknown, a black spot on the map, you might say. And there's one more thing I want you to notice here. In verse 25, verse 25, there's kind of a little, like, you are here dot for Israel as they were reading this. See, it mentions Peleg there. Well, he is Shem's great-great-grandson. And it turns out Peleg is also Abraham's great-great-great-grandfather. Now, don't worry if you kind of can't hold all these names and relationships in your head at the moment. That's not too important. The point here is that if you were an Israelite and you were reading this table of nations sometime after Moses wrote it, then what you would be able to do is be able to look around you at the entire known world at all of the nations all of the tribes with all of their kind of incredible diversity of cultures and languages you'd be able to see the Medes up here and the Egyptians over there and the Canaanites over here and you'd be able to know that every single nation had a shared heritage that you had common ancestors with every single one of them in one sense you all came from the same place On the surface level, that's the answer to the what question. That's what this passage is saying. But before I move on to the second question of why this passage is here, I just want to make one quick point of application already at this point because there's something really important that this raises for us that we shouldn't skip over. I hope that you can tell, even just from this quick glance at the passage, that at the very least, what this passage does is it demonstrates that there is an essential unity to the human race because we're all descended from the one man, from Noah. And so, any worldview that would devalue another person on the basis of their nationality or their race, that is completely out of step with the truth of this chapter. This chapter, and indeed the rest of the Bible, it does not leave room for any people to be thought of or treated as inferior. Now, the reason I'm bothering to mention that is because sadly this chapter has been used in the past to justify some of the most despicable acts of racism, racism that directly led to the slave trade. This chapter was one of the key texts that slave traders would use to justify the enslavement of black-skinned people. Now, I don't have time to really delve much further into that and to unpack exactly what was wrong with their reasoning, but suffice it to say that that kind of an interpretation, that slanders the character of God. A biblical worldview means that you see the inherent dignity and worth of every single human being, no matter where they came from, no matter what their background is. And friends, that means that as Christians, we should be people who are leading the charge when it comes to advocating for the acceptance of refugees we should be people who are leading the charge when it comes to racial reconciliation we should be people who are leading the charge when it comes to caring for the disabled all of those sorts of things some food for thought for you given the federal election that's coming up next week okay we've looked at the what of this passage time for us to consider the second question why why is this here why has Moses bothered ...to include this information in the book of Genesis. Well, as I said before, there is actually a deeper theological truth that we need to grasp here. Because this passage, this is something special. This passage is unlike anything else in ancient Near Eastern literature... Think of all of the great civilizations of the Middle East, all of their works of poetry and of story and of history. There is not one document in the entire ancient Near East that tries to do what Genesis 10 does. Now, it's not uncommon in kind of ancient Near Eastern literature that you might find a, a genealogy that traces the descendants of a famous king, for instance. You can find certainly creation stories in some of these documents. You can find flood stories even. You can find... Uh, Tower stories that all kind of have their parallels in the book of Genesis. But this type of record that tries to account for the existence of every nation on earth, that is totally unheard of. Because the mindset in all of this other literature is, well, why would your nation care about any of the other nations? You know, your holy book, that doesn't have to explain where everyone else came from. It just has to tell you where you came from and what you're about and what your story is. That's the mindset of all the other literature, but not the Bible. Do you know why this chapter is in the Bible? Do you know why Moses included Genesis 10? We have this table of nations to show us that God is a God of the nations, that God was not just Israel's God, he was the God of the earth. He is the God who oversees all peoples and all things. The Lord Yahweh, he's not just some tr- small kind of tribal deity that hangs out in Israel, he is the sovereign over heaven and earth. That's why this chapter is here. And that is the consistent teaching of the Bible, is it not? That God rules over every nation have a look at deuteronomy 32 verse 8 for example this is moses speaking moses says when the most high gave the nations their inheritance when he divided all mankind he set up boundaries for the people according to the numbers of the sons of israel you see god set up boundaries for israel but not just that he set up boundaries for all of the peoples for all of those nations listed in genesis 10 And that's the same thing the Apostle Paul says. Remember Acts chapter 17? Paul says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. You see, God has drawn boundary lines for the nations. Now, from our human vantage point, the boundary lines of nations can be determined by all sorts of things. But from God's vantage point, He has determined who will inhabit what part of earth and for how long. You see, even those pagan nations who don't even realize it, Yahweh is sovereign over them too. There is no part of this world where he's not in charge. Have a look at this other example, 1 Kings chapter 20. Uh, It says this, Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. See, these Arameans, they thought that Israel's God, well, he was excellent in the hills. He's a hill God, but we've got a valley God. And so if we just bring the Israelites down into the valleys, then we'll be able to defeat them because their God doesn't really dwell there. And to that, God says, no, 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 (laughs) I can do hills, I can do valleys, I can do underwater. I'm not located in just one topography, right? How about this 2 Kings chapter 5? Uh, This is a story of of Naaman. He is the Assyrian general and he has leprosy and he hops into the Jordan River and he's healed of his leprosy and he's really impressed and so he asks the prophet Elisha uh, if he can take some of the dirt from Israel back home to Assyria so that he can worship Yahweh there. See, what Naaman's thinking is he thinks that God only operates on his home turf and so he literally wants to take a piece of that back home so that he can worship God there is not how our God works He's not located exclusively in one region or one area he is over all the nations that's the point here that's why Genesis 10 is included in the Bible because God wants us to know that he lays claim to the nations He created them he sustains them he sets up the boundaries he rules them they are his He is the God of the nations and therefore Every nation owes its allegiance to God. Now that has immense implications. Uh, So let's consider our third and final question. The third and final question, so what? Uh, What difference does knowing that actually make? Well, I want to say this. If this is true, if God is the God of the nations and that he lays claim to them, then that automatically makes Genesis chapter 10 a missionary text. It is a text with a missionary mandate. In fact, that is exactly how the apostles and the early church understood Genesis chapter 10, that it was a missionary text. Now, why do I say that? Well, you remember I said earlier that if you listed out the n- number of nations, you would arrive at 70, 70 nations. Okay, need to have a little bit of a history lesson for you here. As we read our English Bibles, there are 70 names listed there because the original Hebrew version of the Bible listed out 70 names. Okay, but later in history, after the Hebrew version was written, by the time you get to about the 3rd century BC before Jesus uh, came to earth, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was known as the Septuagint. And the Jewish people who lived in kind of the Greek speaking parts of the world and the early church as well, they were actually more familiar with the Greek translation than they were with the Hebrew translation. And in the Greek translation, in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, there's not 70 names, there are 72 names. Okay, you with me so far? Two different versions of the table of nations depending on your translation. 70 or 72 names. Now, why is that significant? Well, let's have a look at Luke's gospel, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. This is the story where Jesus is sending out his disciples on their first mission trip He's sending them out to preach. He's sending them out to heal. He's sending them out to cast out demons. And look what we find here. And it's not at all by accident, okay? Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, if you've got a hard copy of your Bible in front of you, there will be a little asterisk and a footnote there above that number 70. And if you look down to the bottom of your page, it will say... Some manuscript 72, excuse me. It'll say some manuscripts say 70. So it's 70 or 72 disciples that Jesus sends out on mission. Now, why? What is the point here? The point is not well. There's different manuscripts that say different things, and isn't that terrible? No, there is a connection to be made here, and the connection is that if we if we understand that 72 is the correct reading, that Luke, when he was writing the gospel, wrote down 72. Well, probably sometime later, a scribe who was copying Luke's gospel, as was the custom, well, he he would have thought, now wait, we know that this passage is supposed to be, we know what it's supposed to be about. This is supposed to be a reflection of the table of nations. and our Hebrew Bibles, well, we know that there's only 70 names in the table of nations. And so maybe some scribe tried to tweak it a little bit and put 70 instead of 72. And so you have, Not at all by coincidence. You have these kind of two different New Testament manuscripts that both reflect that same diversity that's present there in the Old Testament. You see, because Luke and the early church, they understood that this text in Luke chapter 10, that it was supposed to be a reflection, a reflection just like there are 70 or 72 nations in Genesis 10. So Jesus is sending 70 or 72 disciples out to the nations. Because look at what verse 2 says in Luke 10 there. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. You see, Luke 10 is a mission text. In the early church, they recognized that this mission has its roots in God's sovereignty and his heart for the nations as displayed way back in Genesis 10. Luke is teaching us that when we read Genesis 10, We're supposed to understand that God's desire is for every single nation listed here to come to know him. And so it's no surprise, is it, that as we keep reading through the Old Testament, uh, the story of Israel, we find precisely that intention. That is exactly what God is doing in the pages of Scripture. You know, when he makes his covenant with Abraham just a couple of chapters later, his intention, it's not just to have one nation for himself, His intention is that through Abraham's descendants, the whole earth will be blessed. The sons of Abraham, they were supposed to be a light to the nations. Uh, Even though all of those nations listed there had rebelled against God, even though they turned their backs on him, yet God's plan was to gather them back. Now, of course, as the story of the Old Testament progresses, we see Israel fail spectacularly at that task rather than them being kind of a faithful presence to the nations, Israel, they just constantly turn their own backs on God. They chase after the idols of the nations. And so God begins to speak through the prophets about one who will accomplish this plan for the nations, about a servant of the Lord, about a king that is to come, about a son who will gather the nations back to God. And so you read, for example, in Isaiah 49 about this promised servant, what he's going to do. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This promised one who's being talked about, who will bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth, that is exactly who we meet in the Lord Jesus. Remember the story where Jesus is a baby and he's being presented at the temple and uh, Mary and Joseph run into a guy called Simeon and Simeon sort of looks at this baby Jesus and he recognises that this is the promised one. This is the one who is going to deliver the nations. And so Simeon kind of praises God. He bursts out in this prayer and he says in Luke chapter 2, "'For my eyes have seen your salvation, "'which you have prepared in the sight of all people.'" a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. You see, it's through this baby, it's ultimately through Jesus' death and resurrection that the promise of blessing to the nations would be realised. God's desire to see the nations of the world return to him is made possible only through the gospel. And so you start to see just these kind of tiny little beautiful glimpses of this plan being fulfilled in the New Testament. So you meet, for example, a Gentile like the centurion who crucified Jesus, recognising that he is the Son of God and turning back to God. You see at Pentecost, for example, Jews from all over the known world coming to faith in Christ. There are all these kind of tantalising little glimpses throughout the New Testament that show that the nations are returning to God. But largely, this is an unfinished story, isn't it? For the most part, when the writing of the New Testament finishes, that gathering of the nations, it's only just begun. And that's where I really want us to feel the challenge tonight. Because this age that you and I are living in, between the resurrection of Jesus and his eventual return, this is the age where the nations are to be gathered to God. Jesus himself has left us with that task. The Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. These are the final words of Jesus that are recorded in the Bible. He is commissioning his disciples to go to the nations. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this task, preaching the gospel to the nations, making disciples of all peoples, that this task, this is to be the defining task that we are to give ourselves to in this age. There is nothing more important than this now as you hear that please don't be sitting there tonight and please don't be thinking that somehow this command from the lord jesus that it's not for you that this command well this is just for kind of those super spiritual people please don't be thinking that the command to take the gospel to the nations is not your responsibility no this is this is basic ground level christianity right here This is what it means to follow Jesus. We do what he wants us to do. We go where he wants us to go with no limitations. Because if you're a Christian, then you have actually surrendered control of your life to Jesus. You don't get to call the shots anymore. And Jesus says that every single one of his disciples is to participate in this task. Now for us, that's different to how it was for Israel. Israel were called to kind of be this light to the nations. Nations were supposed to see the way that Israel related to God, the way that they worshipped him, and it was supposed to win the other nations over. It was kind of like a come-and-see approach to evangelism. And now that, that's still true today for Christians, but for us, far more than it ever was for Israel, it's not about come-and-see, it's about go-and-tell. Now for the engineers in the room, this is the difference between a centripetal force and a centrifugal force, centripetal force which kind of pulls towards the centre versus a centrifugal force which pushes out to the fringes. You see, God's plan to gather the nations, that involves us going. It involves us going to them and not only expecting them to come to us. And Friends, there are so many people who need to hear the gospel. From that 70 nations that are listed in Genesis 10... Today, the best guess is that there are about 11,500 distinct people groups on earth. Of that 11,500 people groups on earth, the best estimates say that probably about 6,500 of them are classified as unreached. That means they have less than a 2% Christian population amongst them. 6,500 unreached people groups that represents roughly about 40 percent of the world's population that equates to just a little over 3 billion people 3 billion people who don't know the gospel 3 billion people who if nothing else changes are facing an eternity separated from god if you're a christian here tonight hear this loud and clear you cannot be indifferent to those people aside from the fact that Jesus commands you to do something about this, if you're indifferent to those people, what that demonstrates is that you don't actually understand what it means to be lost. So let me ask you, friends, what are you going to do to reach these people? That's not a rhetorical question. Uh, Every single one of us sitting here tonight has to figure out our answer to that question. What are you going to do to reach those three billion people? What part are you going to play? The Great Commission, it only leaves us with three options, really. Three options. You can either go, you can send, or you can disobey. They're your three options. So are you going to go? Great. Let's pack your bags. Let's get you trained. Let's get you equipped. Let's pray for God's equipping on you. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. Are you going to send? Great. Let's open our wallets. Let's get on our knees. Let's pray for the Lord of the harvest to save many people. Or are you going to disobey? You have to make a choice. Go, send, or disobey. Because God is the God of the nations, and he wants to use you to reach the nations, to gather the nations back to himself. As I close tonight, let me just encourage you that whilst we are tasked with what might look like an impossible mission, a mission that is going to be costly, that is going to be hard, let me encourage you that we need to remember always that this mission cannot fail. It cannot fail because God has in fact already shown us the end of the story, hasn't he? Have a look at Revelation chapter 7. This is a scene In the future, a scene from the throne room of heaven. Revelation 7. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People from every nation every tribe every people every language will be represented around the throne gathered for one purpose to kneel and worship christ it is a certainty and so please friends take heart because god is working in our world today towards that end consider that in china in 1970. 0.1% 0.1% of the population identified themselves as Christians. By the year 2020, that number is going to be over 10%. That's 140 million Chinese Christians in 50 years. Consider that in Africa in the last, year, uh, last 100 years, Christians have grown from less than 10% of the population to today over 40%. That is roughly 500 million people. Consider that in Iran, just 35 years ago, the best estimates were that there were less than 500 believers in that country. Today, most people think that there are over 300,000. Friends, God is gathering the nations to himself. In Christ, nothing will stop him. So the question we have to ask is, do we share God's heart for the nations? If you do share God's heart, The nations, then when you look at the nations of the world, you won't feel arrogant superiority to them. You won't feel indifference towards them. You will feel compassion towards them. You will feel a desire for every single one of them to be represented in the kingdom of God. Let me pray. Almighty God, Your power is unfathomable. That you would send your son to die for sinners. That you would, by your endless mercy, offer forgiveness in his name. That you would blot out the transgressions of the nations as they turn to you in Christ. God, you you are incredible. God, we thank you tonight that even this gathering is a testimony to your unstoppable gospel. That we sit here because your gospel plan is still moving forward. God, would you please help us to share your heart for the nations. Help us to see the nations of this world the way that you see them, as lost and without hope and in desperate need of the gospel. God, please, may we be people who see that need and who stand and who say, here I am, send me. We ask this, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Please stand as we uh, join in this song uh, and reflect on what it is... Um, that Jesus has done for us and what that means as we go out beyond our doors here.
1: my best to answer. Uh, There's a couple of questions